Welcome to the Bulwark Podcast, and congratulations on getting through the first quarter of 2022. I've received many uh, requests from people, hey, could you pass on April 1st Day, April Fool's Day? It's just too stressful, and there's too much stuff out there. So just, this would be a year maybe to restrain yourself. I I, I haven't made a, an executive decision on that, just, just as a warning. Also, this morning it strikes me that in an era in which nothing matters, we finally are finding out what does matter, or at least Madison Cawthorn is finding out what uh, matters. Uh, in my newsletter this morning, I have a piece about uh, trusting Madison Cawthorn. You know, this is what it took. I mean, it wasn't the tree punching. It wasn't his racist website or lying about his accident or lying about being admitted to the Naval Academy. It wasn't his incitement of the January 6th insurrection, the allegations of sexual misconduct against him by multiple women. It wasn't his threats of violence or or, you know, his sliming of Vladimir Zelensky as a thug. Apparently, none of that was enough to shake Kevin McCarthy's trust in the uh, flamboyantly reprehensible young congressman. But now everybody, including uh, McCarthy, is just shocked to discover that Madison Cawthorn is a liar, a crackpot, and an overall deplorable human being. And all it took was a few allegations about orgies and key bumps of cocaine. Now, I have to admit, because I lead a sheltered life and I live in Wisconsin, I was not familiar with the phrase key bump, but apparently Madison Cawthorn is. So apparently there are only two ways to really get yourself in trouble in the Republican caucus these days. Number one is to suggest that your colleagues might be engaging in orgies or cocaine use. And number two would be, of course, to uh, take the January 6th insurrection seriously. So Madison Cawthorn now apparently is going to be joining Liz Cheney uh, as a pariah in the party. By the way, again, uh, it, it looks like Madison Cawthorn may be in some very serious trouble. Back home, he's got a primary challenger, and it looks like a lot of Republicans are just fed up with him. So who knew that, in fact, that there might actually be a standard? One would have hoped the standard would have been, I don't know, sedition, racism, just, you know, complete, you know, your your, your serial uh, dishonesty. But, uh, but no, um, but Madison Cawthorn has found that there was a tripwire out there. So to discuss the politics of the day, in particular, the politics of the fascinating state of Georgia, we are fortunate enough to have Greg Bluestein, who is political reporter for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. He covers state and national politics. He has a new book out about the epic 2020 elections in Georgia called Flipped, How Georgia Turned Purple and Broke the Monopoly on Republican Power. He's also a contributor to NBC News and the host of the Politically Georgia podcast. So, Greg, welcome to the podcast today. Thank you so much. We might have a few Georgia politicians who are taking notes from what happened to Madison out there in North Carolina about what not to do. And, you know, we, we have a few other politicians who have gotten away with a lot of things, um, but haven't quite provoked that sort of ire from House Republican leaders quite yet. Well, that is fascinating because uh, they're, you know, drawing the line at Madison Cawthorn in a way that uh, the Kevin McCarthy has not done with Marjorie Taylor Greene, your own Marjorie exactly. Taylor Greene and Paul Gosar. So, you know, and, I mean, is there a line for Marjorie Taylor Greene since you bring it up? If there is, we haven't seen it yet. And I, I actually write about her a lot in the book because, you know, I first met her in the you know, more moderate, actually Democratic leaning now suburbs of North Atlanta. Uh, where she came to the coffee shop around the corner to introduce herself to me. And she basically framed herself as a slightly more conservative version of the incumbent Republican Congresswoman at the time, Karen Handel. She said, oh, I'm going to attack Karen Handel for voting on the budget. Mm -hmm. And otherwise, you know, we're all on the kind of this, it, it seemed like hmm. they were all on the same page. And yet she became 
more and more and more far right as that campaign went on. And she decided to run for an open seat out in rural Northwest Georgia. And the rest is sort of history now. She's kind of a household name in Republican politics. And and yet, you know, while the orgies and the key bumps are derailing Madison Cawthorn, the various increasingly bizarre conspiracy theories, the anti-Semitism uh, of Marjorie Taylor Greene doesn't seem to have you know shaken her status as kind of a rock star in the Republican Party yet. Not at all. Um, you know, we, we've seen Kevin McCarthy say, oh, I'm going to have a quiet discussion with her about trying to interrupt Joe Biden's speech oh, or, yeah, yeah. you know, all the different antics she's done. But no, and, and of course, she was stripped of her committee assignments, but that was because of a Democratic vote. Right. And, right. and only a handful of Republicans joined that vote. Um, but really, she's also in such a sheltered district right now, just like so many other um, you know, incumbents from both parties. There's very few swing districts. There's no swing districts really left in Georgia. Mm-hmm. Um and uh, she continues to be, you know, uh, exactly what you said, sort of a pariah among some Republicans, but among others, a hero. So I saw that um, the Republican Jewish uh, group has endorsed her primary opponent, uh, which is unusual for this group to endorse against an incumbent. Is is there any, uh, you know, is it irrational exuberance to think that she might actually face a serious primary challenge or is that uh, just wish casting? You know, there's there. She faces a handful of Republicans, and there's about a half dozen Democrats, mm. and some of them are actually raising significant money. But this is a district where it's so solidly Republican. It was actually redrawn a little bit in, to include a majority black districts precincts in in Atlanta suburbs. So the people in that district are not happy at all <laughs> about mm. being drawn into Marjorie Taylor Greene's territory. Um, but she's in such a solid position. Look, we'll we'll know if she's worried if she starts attacking her rivals, and she hasn't ah. uttered her rivals' names yet, Democrat or Republican. She's raised millions of dollars, and when I go to her events, her rallies up in that part of town, up in Northwest Georgia, there are hundreds of people there. Mm. Uh, they're all saying, "Hey, you know, we support her. We we like what she's saying. She's speaking for us." So it's of course not the universal view across that district, but for the most part, if there's an arb next to her name on the general election ballot, people are going to vote for her. So for years, I had described Wisconsin as the epicenter of American politics, but obviously Georgia has taken that that title. Uh, Georgia really has become the center of so much of what's happening in American politics and obviously was uh, decisive on January 5th in terms of control of the United States Senate. So I want to talk about that and Trump's role. Um, because it, it, it does seem that, that, you know, as you point out, you know, uh, Georgia is a purple state and it can go either way. Trump had a rally over the weekend in Commerce, Georgia, and you were there. And I was uh, l- watching your tweets and you shared some photos of the crowd that looked to be smaller than usual. So tell, tell me what you saw at this latest Trump rally and what what conclusions you're drawing? What are you what are you picking up there? You know, it's fascinating. I, I've covered dozens, literally dozens of his rallies um, all over the nation and many in Georgia. And to me, clearly, this was the smallest outdoor rally he's had hmm. in Georgia since 2016, since he became, you know, the nominee and then later the president, of course. I'm used to seeing 20,000, 30,000 people at his rallies. It was I'm really bad at estimating, but it was far less than that. It was closer to eight, 9,000. But the thing that struck me about mm. that rally was not, you know, as much as the size was different, it was the mood of the crowd. 
many, many, many people left as he was talking or even before the former president took the mic. And then when it came to hearing their responses, the crowd seemed most animated not by traditional issues about, you know, crime and guns and culture war issues. Uh, there was some polite applause when, when, when Donald Trump started attacking, you know, Atlanta's high crime rate and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was about 2020. Whenever 2020 was invoked, whenever, you know, lies about election fraud were invoked, that was when the crowd got most animated. And it was fascinating, too, to hear um, some of the candidates who were speaking before President Trump who were endorsed by him. And they had the same issue. You know, David Perdue, who the former senator who Trump endorsed to, to run against Brian Kemp, the incumbent governor in Georgia, he talked about all sorts of issues on his campaign agenda. He said he would slash the income tax. He opposed this big $5 billion Rivian electric vehicle mm-hmm. plant. He talked about um, splitting Atlanta into two cities. None of that got any response. I mean, you could you could huh. barely a stir in the crowd. But when he started talking about holding people accountable for what happened in 2020, there was literally a cheer saying, lock him up re- regarding Brian Kemp. And David Perdue, once Brian Kemp's one of his biggest allies, turns around to the crowd, flashes a thumbs up sign, claps, smiles, eggs them on. That, to me, was the biggest moment of that rally. And that's what got the most attention, because, of course, uh, going back to David Perdue's career, he was a United States senator. He was kind of considered sort of a mainstream Republican. Yeah. I mean, and yet now he's uh, he's discovered that uh, once you if you want Trump support, you have to buy into the big lie. And then once you bought into the big lie, you have to keep going with it. And it's the you only keep thing moving the goalpost. You have to keep moving the goalpost now. He had originally not said that he'd been cheated out of his Senate seat in the in the runoff election. Has he changed his tune? Because this is the interesting thing about Georgia, that if, in fact, the election was stolen from Donald Trump, why haven't we heard more about how, the Senate seats that were on the ballot on the same day, the same ballot? You know, you characterize him accurately, right? He, he was he was an outsider, but he was a mainstream outsider. He was a corporate executive. Um, he comes from a storied political family. His first cousin, Sonny Perdue, was the first Republican governor in Georgia since Reconstruction, so for more than a century. Um, so he's not some sort of fringe, far-right candidate when he started running for U.S. Senate. His campaign in 2014 was more of, I'm the outsider. I'll bring a fresh perspective in. I'll bring a business background. Then in 2016, he became one of the first U.S. senators to back Donald Trump. I, I was there mm. in Athens when he, he had his famous blue jean jacket, which was the star of so many of his campaign ads, and he put on a red MAGA hat. And he said, I am you know, all in for Donald Trump. And that was a big moment in Georgia, and, and in, in a sense for Trump's campaign nationally, because only a, a handful of federal elected officials had backed him at that point. And since then, he has gone further and further towards Donald Trump's orbit. And you're right. In the run-up to this rally, he said for the first time that not only was Donald Trump's election rigged, which of course it wasn't, he also said his election was stolen mm-hmm. against John Ossoff. And that was, a, that was a line he has not crossed until now. You know, he has said that he got more votes than John Ossoff in the first phase of the campaign, which is true. In Georgia, we have runoff elections. Mm-hmm. You have to have 50 plus one to win. And David Perdue got close to the 50% mark, but didn't didn't pass it in that first round. But now he's he's leveraging and he's he's doubling down on the Trump lies in order to cozy up closer to the former president because that's his ace card. You know, he's talked about other issues that differentiate himself from Brian Kemp, but his main issue right now is Donald Trump. So we're going to come back to the, the the 2020 election. Is there is there any doubt in your mind that he lost that election? 
in the runoff election on January 5th because of Donald Trump, that, that Donald Trump actually suppressed the Republican vote in that runoff? You know, it was a, it was a combination of factors that yeah. definitely included that. I mean, Democrats had to play their part. They had to re-energize their base. They had to get uh, voters who never vote in runoffs, right? V- runoff Runoffs in Georgia tend yeah. to be very low turnout. And so they had to kind of rebuild the entire coalition that helped elect uh, Joe Biden. So Democrats had to play their part. But certainly Trump and his demands that that both Kelly Leffler and David Perdue keep on moving further to the right, further toward whatever goalpost he decided to set up that day, complicated everything. And, and one story from the book that always stands out to me when I think about this is Kelly Leffler, her aides, you know, of course, like any sophisticated campaign, have tons of databases and tracking and wit and all sorts of voter tracking guides. But they had a, a campaign database with thousands of names on it, thousands. And they called it GOP not voting. And these were dedicated Trump supporters who were reliable Republican voters for years who they didn't even want to bother with because they knew that they wouldn't vote because they were victims of the big lie. I, I actually remember, though, um, that that night very, very well that I went to bed early because I figured the January 6th was going to be a big day, but I just simply assumed that the Republicans were going to win. I mean, how big a shock was it to people in Georgia that both of the Republican senators went down and flip controlled the United States Senate? I mean, I'm sitting here in Wisconsin, so I mean, you were much closer. Were you, were you surprised? Were you shocked? I mean, what? You know, in Georgia now, for reporters, for me at least, uh, covering elections is an all-nighter. Like I just, it's like going back to college or high right, school or right. something. I'm just pulling all nighters, but instead of going to parties, I'm sitting there, you know, at a hotel room talking to activists and updating my uh, vote count on my computer. So I wasn't terribly, I, I knew it'd be very close. Well, you know, what shocked me was that it wasn't closer, that both David Perdue and Kelly Leffler conceded. Mm. That's the thing now that um, David Perdue said uh-huh. one. They both conceded within hours slash days. I mean, David Perdue conceded a few days later. Kelly Leffler conceded a couple hours after the election. But we were totally gearing up for a repeat of what happened in November 2020 when, of course, we saw Donald Trump contest the election and seed the field. Georgia was one of the biggest battlegrounds of, of the misinformation campaign for Donald Trump's Stop the Steal movement and took days. You know, It wasn't until three or four days later that, that Georgia, you know, the vote count actually formally flipped Georgia. And then it was another week until the networks called Georgia. So I was expecting you know, a fight till January, maybe up until inauguration day, maybe up until January 20th around then. But that didn't happen. So let's talk about what's happening right now. All of the Republicans in Georgia are conservative Republicans. Fair enough. I mean, you know, we're we're all talking about various shades of pretty conservative Republicans. Brian Kemp, the incumbent governor, very conservative, ran as a very Mm -hmm. Trumpy candidate for governor. And you have this primary election now between David Perdue, who is Trump's endorsement, and Brian Kemp, um, a very conservative Republican. Just give me your sense of the the state of play, because uh, the polls that I've seen, and you correct me if I'm out of date, the polls I've seen would suggest that despite Trump's opposition, that Brian Kemp has been leading. Yes, that's a great way to frame it, because it's not like it's not like Governor Kemp is some squishy moderate. He's not, you know. He's been characterized by Trump as a rhino, but he's the first lifelong Republican governor in Georgia history. And one of the first things he did was sign into law a sweeping anti-abortion yeah. uh, legislation. And since then, he's gone to war with Joe Biden every chance he can get, sued the administration multiple times, pushed for anti-vaccine mandates and mask mandates, rollbacks of those requirements, fought to roll back regulations, expand gun rights. 
sort of every sort of thing you'd think would be on the GOP governor's wish list. And frankly, he's gone a lot further to the right than his, yeah. his two Republican predecessors, Nathan Deal and Sonny mm-hmm. Perdue, on many issues. Um, so yeah, he is he is not sort of kowtowing to the middle here. And yet, Donald Trump, because of the aftermath of 2020, he feels like Brian Kemp didn't do enough to support his claims yeah. of election fraud. And there were things Kemp didn't do. He did not call a special session that could have sought to overturn the election results. And he did, he, and he, he can basically, he certified the vote. He signed, he confirmed the vote totals a couple of weeks after the election, uh, which kind of sealed um, the election results. And he was bound by law to do so. He had no other right. choice but to seal that. But, but, as, but as we've seen, following the law can be an unforgivable sin in, in yes. Trump, Trump world. Exactly, exactly. And that's something David Perdue, right when he entered the campaign with Donald Trump's support, said, hey, I would have called the special session. I looked Brian Kemp right in the eye and told him to do so. That's in my book as well. And he also said he wouldn't have certified the election, even though, again, he's bound by law to have, to have verified the election results. There's no, there's no wiggle room in the state law about that. You have a very colorful quote from uh, Brian Kemp in your book. Yeah, I have a couple, but one of them was he told friends um, after Donald Trump, one of the Donald Trump pressure campaigns that, hey, he, de- he doesn't, at that moment, he didn't give a shit about what Donald Trump thought about him. I mean, he was dealing with uh, personal tragedy. One of his, his, one of his daughter's boyfriends, who was also a Republican campaign operative, yeah. had died in a tragic mm-hmm. car accident. You know, it was a stressful time, of course. And Trump was incessantly begging, pleading, bullying, cajoling, however you want to put it, urging him to overturn and take actions to support his false claims of election fraud. And we don't have a tape recording of that like we do with Brad mm-hmm. Raffensperger, uh, the Secretary of State. But you know, I assume it was something along the same lines, which was Donald Trump was very open about urging Georgia officials to do what they could to help promote his false claims. I think it's fair to say that if Brian Kemp wins this primary, it will be perceived as a real defeat for for Donald Trump, a sign that his influence is not quite as a uh, iron grip on the Republican mm-hmm. Party as some people might have thought. I think yeah. that's a great point. Um, is, that, is that a fair I think, interpretation? It is. I think George is the biggest test of, of Trump's clout in the nation. And it's not just because of this David Perdue-Brian Kemp race. It's also when you look further down the ballot, the other candidates he's endorsed. He's endorsed mm. a former Democrat. Um, who just two years ago was a state lawmaker, Democratic state lawmaker, who voted against Brian Kemp's, you know, top Republican priorities. He endorsed him to run for Congress. (laughs) He endorsed a range of down-ticket candidates for insurance commissioner and attorney general simply because they were going against incumbents who were backed by Brian Kemp. These are candidates, by the way, who are not well-known in Georgia at all. In those latter cases, these were candidates who just got in right before the qualifying deadline have very little, if any, name recognition, you know, in, in standing in the polls. And so these candidates go down, they'll be tied to Donald Trump. and It'll be looked at as, you know, another indication that his grip on the GOP is weakening. Although he just did an interview with one of the far right outlets where he essentially said, well, you know, I might, you know, some of these candidates I've endorsed are long shots. And then he went into mm. talking about David Perdue. So it's already seeming like he's trying to either backtrack or hedge his bets a little. Okay, so I want to talk about the wild card in Georgia politics. But let's do that right after this. This is Charlie Sykes, and I want to tell you about Famous Smoke Shop. A good cigar is a reward. It's a tradition. At Famous Smoke Shop, they know all about it, American-owned and independent. Famous Smoke is your neighborhood cigar shop, no matter where your neighborhood is. 
As a matter of fact, Famous Smoke Shop was recently named the best place to buy cigars online by both Cool Material and Cigar World. Now in their 83rd year, Famous Smoke continues to offer the authentic cigar shop experience, decades worth of cigar knowledge, a huge selection of premium cigars, and low prices that every cigar enthusiast will love. Famous Smoke Shop offers a huge selection of over a thousand brands to choose from. You'll find incredible deals on everyday cigars and highly rated classics, including Romeo, Monte Cristo, Acid, Macanudo, Oliva, and Fuente. Plus, every purchase is backed by their 30-day Famous Freshness Guarantee. So, if you want your cigars fresh and delivered fast, it has to be Famous Smoke Shop. I have to tell you, my wife and I had something that we wanted to celebrate the other night, and it seemed perfect to break out some of the cigars. I love the Macanudos, and we went out to the back porch, and I thoroughly enjoyed it. There's just sort of nothing like a cigar at the end of the day to celebrate, to celebrate some triumph or to just celebrate life, to celebrate spring. So here's an exclusive offer for my listeners. To save $20 off your purchase of $100 or more, Go to famous-smoke.com. That's famous-smoke.com and use code BULLWORK at checkout to save $20 off your purchase of $100 or more. You'll get your favorite cigars delivered direct from their humidor to yours. That's promo code BULLWORK for $20 off your purchase at famous-smoke.com. Great cigar deals only at famous-smoke.com. And remember to use promo code BULLWORK. Okay, we are back with Greg Bluestein, who is a political reporter for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. We've been talking about the, uh, the, the strange world of Georgia politics. Uh, before we get to the wild card that I want to talk about, uh, Brad Raffensperger, who played such an incredible role in this election, including releasing the tape of the president of the United States, uh, trying to bully him into finding uh, 11,000 extra votes. He's running for re-election as well. Um, is there any way that Brad Raffensperger uh, survives a Republican primary this year? Surprisingly, there is. There you is. Know, if you had asked okay. me that last yeah. year, I would have thought he wouldn't even qualify. I, I thought yeah. he wouldn't make it this far. And yet, you know, he has a couple Republican opponents, um, but the biggest one is Congressman Jody Heiss. He's the main rival. He has Trump's endorsement as well. But Jody Heiss has not gained that much traction or not as much as you'd think. There's still a significant number of Republican voters who haven't heard of him, don't know he's been endorsed by Trump, don't know his policies. And Brad Raffensperger, even though he is a pariah to some on the, on the, on the right in Georgia, he still has high name recognition. And there are others, especially mainstream Republicans, who, who see him as, as a hero figure, as someone with courage to stand up to the former president. You know, that audio tape of that call is almost universally known in Georgia politics. Mm -hmm. And as many enemies as he made from the GOP about it, he's also made a lot of allies. And there are some, even some Democrats who I've talked to who are considering voting in the Republican primary just to support him. You know, what's interesting is the, 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 the contrast between, you know, various state politics. Um, I, I, I have, again, I, you know, have, have long thought that Wisconsin politics was uh, w was distinctive in in part because of its independence. And of course, that that that's a take that has not aged particularly well. But but in Georgia <laughs> and Arizona, you have very robust factions in the Republican Party that are willing to 
push back against the big lie very, very aggressively. In Arizona, you have the Maricopa County Republicans who have, you know, been adamant that that no, the election was fair, free, and and, and insecure. And of course, in in Georgia, we had um, that that vigorous debate going on. What's interesting is that in Wisconsin, which was initially anti-Trump, it's very hard to find prominent Republicans who are willing to push back as aggressively. Um, and I and I don't have a I don't have an operative theory about this. Okay, so I, w- I want to get to uh, again some other dynamics in in Georgia politics. But talk to me for a moment about Herschel Walker because that that also seems to be kind of an outlier, one of the oddest, most troubled, most problematic U.S. Senate candidates on a glide path to be the nominee uh, for U.S. Senate in Georgia. And even with the endorsement of Mitch McConnell, who would normally be expected to steer clear of some of the so we say, candidates with a checkered pass. So talk to me yeah. about Herschel Walker and his prospects to knock off Ralph Warnock. Yeah, and when you say wild card, that's a perfect example because we just don't know how this is going to go. Um, we really don't. Um, you know, you, you mentioned this, but he's one of the rare candidates to have both the endorsement of Donald Trump and Mitch McConnell. Yeah. And probably one of the rare candidates who doesn't need either because his name recognition is so high in Georgia because of his famous football playing days. You know, he led University of Georgia to a national championship more than 40 years ago. And people like me who grew up, uh, and I, I was born after that time, but I grew up hearing stories about his athletic prowess, right? About all his feats. Um, and, you know, even though I didn't get to UGA until, you know, years later, they were still telling stories about Herschel Walker there. He's still a legendary figure on campus and, and just around Georgia. And this is a football mad state. So um, it, it is a big deal. Um, you know, and when people saw Herschel Walker years ago, wherever he goes, there is a long line of people trying to take selfies with him, get autographs, even if they don't agree with his political persuasion. And I saw that firsthand again. He's had very few public events and the public events he's had are very, very tightly controlled. But at the rally that we were talking about, I saw people try to hurdle over metal barriers okay. just to get within earshot of him. So he is, he is the definition of a celebrity in Georgia. Um, and of course, that comes with pitfalls too. Um, it means his past is being exposed and scrutinized in a way that it wasn't before. Um, and he has a long history of violence against women, right. against um, uh, accusations of, of, of assault from his not just his ex-wife, but other women who are very close to him, and just erratic behavior. And he's, he's been open about his mental health history. Um, he, he suffers from disassociative identity disorder, um, which used to be called multiple personality disorder. And he's had treatment and he's written a book about it. Um, but, you know, to this day, um, he has not answered many questions about, about that past, about these allegations um, that are in police reports and lawsuits and legal filings and all sorts of things. Um, and, and this will be something that, you know, look, already now his Republican primary opponents are bringing them up, but you better believe Senator Raphael Warnock will be putting them front and center in a general election campaign. And it looks like it's headed that way because Herschel Walker is at 60, 70, even 80% in the polls that I've seen. So when when I mentioned the wild card before, obviously I I was thinking of of Herschel Walker, but primarily of Stacey Abrams. Um, You make the case that her impact on Georgia politics cannot be overstated or her voter registration efforts were obviously critical in Biden's um, win, the special election wins. The New York Times writes, quoting from your book, that she was one of the first statewide figures who sought to harness the emergency alliance 
that was racially, economically, and geographically diverse, rather than trying to recreate the Democratic coalition that elected Bill Clinton to the presidency in 1992. So talk to me about this, because you know, Stacey Abrams does seem to be one of those very rare transformative figures, at least transforming the the calculus and the calculations of politics in Georgia. How has she done that? Yeah, and it's important to remember that you know Georgia was a Democratic state for a very long time, up until about two decades ago. And as such, you know, Democrats had a very unique and tough alliance. It was it was strained. Uh, urban African American Democrats and rural white Democrats were the backbone of that alliance. And so you could see there was a lot of issues and a lot of times where it could be frayed or there was tensions and all that. And the Republicans basically dominated in Atlanta suburbs. Well, now we've seen it kind of being flipped on its head. Of course, um, Black Democrats still are the beating heart of, of the Georgia Democratic Coalition. But now the suburbs have flipped blue and are more, more liberal than ever. And um, rural Georgia is as red as ever. Rural Georgia is, you know, so there are some counties that went 80% for Trump and 90% for Brian Kemp in 2016 and 2018. And so Stacey Abrams, for the first time really that we've seen a conventional Democratic candidate say, hey, we can't go back. We can't try to recreate that. We can't try to win over Republican you know, voters that used to vote Democrat, especially in rural Georgia. Uh, we're not going to, you know, we're not going to spend all of our time and energy trying to mobilize middle of the road voters who are swing voters who hmm. may or may not back with us. She said, of course, she'll take them. You know, they'll, they'll, they'll end up coming anyway. It was her thought. But what she wanted to do is mobilize, energize, engage, connect with um, the party's base, including many young voters, voters of color that weren't voting in midterms, that in some cases weren't even voting in presidential elections by giving them a reason to vote. And um, her 2018 campaign took on issues that are now commonplace in Georgia and other states, but that weren't back then. I mean, you know, it seems strange to say, but Democratic candidates didn't embrace gun control in Georgia. They ran as NRA Democrats. And now hmm. to be a Democratic anything in Georgia, you basically have to embrace some sort of gun safety legislation. You know, criminal justice overhauls, decriminalizing marijuana. She talked about taking the Confederate faces off of Stone Mountain, which is the largest Confederate memorial in the nation. It's this giant granite mountain not far from, from the city of Atlanta. Um, so there were issues that she talked about that were meant to energize left-leaning voters who didn't feel like they were being talked to. And I, and I interviewed so many of them who just felt like they were left out of the process. They were disengaged. And Stacey Abrams said, hey, you know, to engage them, we have to be authentic to our Democratic core. And that's one of the things she did. So that was then. And this is now. So she loses 2018 by 50,000 votes. Is that right? Roughly 50,000 yeah, votes? 35,000. Did she ever concede? Because that became very controversial that she suggested that uh, somehow her defeat was illegitimate. And Republicans uh, will often point to Stacey Abrams' refusal to acknowledge her defeat as sort of a, well, look, you're criticizing Trump for claiming that he didn't win. So what is your characterization of, of her response to her defeat? Yeah, there's this 10-day limbo period that ended with her non-concession speech. That was maybe one of the most famous speeches in Georgia right. politics because she ended her campaign, but she did not concede defeat. And there's an important distinction. She did not do what Donald Trump did. So I know there's a lot of folks out there who, mm -hmm. who draw a line. Um, she did not try to overturn her election. She did not call Georgia election officials and, and urge them to find yeah. enough votes for her to win. But she did not concede defeat to, to Brian Kemp. And for a while there... The Democratic Party of Georgia, every time it mentioned Kemp's name, had an asterisk next to it, as if he was not the legitimate governor. 
you know, and she would say at events shortly after, look, I get it. I don't live in the governor's mansion. I understand I'm not the governor. I acknowledge that Governor Kemp is the governor. But she felt there was systemic issues with the election system, starting with the fact that Brian Kemp at the time was secretary of state, which in Georgia means he oversees the election. And she felt it was unfair that the secretary of state was running for governor and also overseeing that vote. So this confuses those of us on the outside. So her argument was not that there was fraud, but that there had been an effort to suppress the vote or that various, uh, you know, systemic problems um, made it impossible for her to win. But my recollection is that, in fact, the African-American vote was was up substantially in 2018, that that despite the claims of voter suppression, that, in fact, this was a an all time high. Is that correct? It was. And, and and she actually even improved upon Hillary Clinton's results in, in Democratic bastions like, like DeKalb County, which is the most important Democratic county in Georgia. But she would argue that those things could be true at the same time. She would argue you could have record turnout among Democratic voters, and she got the most Democratic votes of anyone, while at the same time, there could still be systemic issues with our election system in Georgia. Mm-hmm. There could be uh, too tightly uh, held requirements there's issues with provisional ballots and absentee ballot signature requirements. And, and there was a lot of litigation around it. And most of her litigation involved adding ballots to, mm-hmm. the, to the tally rather than taking them away. So what's happened? There's been a lot of back and forth uh, about Georgia's change to the election laws. There was an initial proposals that were um, seemed to be rather suppressive uh, that did not make the final legislative cut. So give me your overall take. Looking back on it right now, what has been the effect of these new election laws that actually did pass, were signed into law, and have actually been endorsed by people like Brad Raffensperger. So just give me your sense of, you know, because on, on the outside, there was a lot of really kind of hair on fire reaction to the initial pieces of legislation was what was passed as bad as people thought it was going to be. Yeah. And we're about to find out really <laughs> what the effect that will be because we haven't really had a big stress test. We had municipal elections last year, but those are lower turnout. We're, we're about to have major turnout elections where we'll find out what the impact has been. But you're right. I mean, the first iterations of that legislation would have banned ballot drop boxes. Um, there were some lawmakers who sought to end what they call no excuse absentee ballots, which means you had, you'd have to have you know a reason like a, an illness or or a doctor's note in order to cast a mail-in ballot. Um, that those didn't make the cut. But what did make the cut were were other um, obstacles to voting that that had not been in previous legislation. For instance, voter ID requirements for people who mail in ballots, more limits on absentee ballot drop boxes, tighter deadlines to request and send in your absentee ballots. So again, you know, we're assuming that this could affect thousands of votes, maybe not hundreds of thousands, but thousands of votes. We're not sure. We just don't know yet. Um, we've had preliminary examples from municipal elections where some people miss those deadlines, but we're just not sure what the effect will be in the May primary or or the November election. But in a state like Georgia, where things were so close in 2020, where Donald Trump and Joe Biden were divided by just about 11,000 votes, that yeah, something like this could affect the outcome. And, and that's why... That's why you're hearing from candidates from both parties say, have a plan, have a plan to vote. Don't, don't do this as a last minute thing. Yes, you can vote on election day, but we've had places in Georgia, rural and urban and suburban, where you've had hours long lines because of technical glitches, because of poorly trained staff, because of other various factors. I've seen people bring coolers and lawn chairs to vote. Mm. It's, it's horrifying, right? To watch people 
who who are that committed to vote. So it's inspiring in some sense, but who have to bring chairs and food and snacks because they know they'll be there for four or five hours or six hours to cast their ballots. So there are already issues with Georgia's election system, and we're about to get a major stress test going forward. So you read extensively about the voter turnout operation that Abrams and the Democrats built in 2020. I mean, you write the overall Democratic effort boasted some 40,000 staffers that's amazing, and volunteers who accounted for 25 million attempts to reach voters that amounted to 10 different contacts for each of Joe Biden's 2.5 million voters in Georgia, with a particular focus on Georgians of color who were more likely to abstain from overtime contests. But OK, so. That was in 2020. But as you also point out, the hard work was obviously assisted by extraordinary good luck, right? Yep. So this is the question. Without a global pandemic, without Trump on the ballot, what are your thoughts about how this is going to play out in 2022? This obviously crucial, um, the big suburban shift. Was that firm or was it a fluke? What What do you get a sense, particularly in light of all of these national polls showing a massive upsurge of support for Republicans? I mean, this looks like it's going to be a very, very difficult year for Democrats. You are a purple state. So how does that manifest itself in the races for governor, the race for legislature, Congress and the U.S. Senate in Georgia? In 2022. Yeah, Senator Raphael Warnock might be the most vulnerable Senate incumbent Democrat in the nation. Really? He has a very tough re-election campaign. Very tough. Um, Stacey Abrams knows she's going into headwinds, right? She knows that not only all those factors you mentioned, but Joe Biden's approval rating in Georgia, is the last poll that the Atlanta Journal Constitution did was at 33%. Um, 33% in a state that he won in 2020. Down double digits from our last poll. I mean, inflation in Metro Atlanta is among the highest rise in the nation. Fuel prices are up to record highs in Metro Atlanta as well in recent weeks. So there are a lot of factors going against Democrats. Factors that are going for them are there too, though, including the fact that there's still this Trump-driven division among the Republican Party that isn't going away, even if Brian Kemp easily wins. Trump's not about to stop his vendetta against Brian Kemp or trying to exact revenge. There are still... GOP infighting on other issues. The GOP is not unified in the, in the state of Georgia. And the Democratic Party is more or less, right? Stacey Abrams didn't draw any primary challenger. Raphael Warnock only drew token opposition. So both of them are already shifting to the middle. You know, they, they've already locked down their base. They've already, uh, you know, they've, they, they've, they're already liberal icons in the minds of many. So right now what they're doing is talking to the middle. Raphael Warnock, the first things out of his mouth, the first words out of his mouth after he qualified to run for another term was, I'm going back to Washington to fight these price increases. Mm. He's introduced legislation to cap the price of insulin, to have a federal sales tax holiday on on gas taxes, and to go after what he views are price gougers in the global supply industry. And Stacey Abrams, her message can be summed up to two words right now, expand Medicaid. It's something that she talked about in 2018 and the Democratic mm-hmm. candidates have been talking about for more than a decade, but she is now tying that message to just about every question she's asked, whether it be economy, the state of rural Georgia, infrastructure even. She's going back to expand Medicaid because it polls really well. And of course, there's a policy reason too, for obvious reasons. She feels like it would 
pump up investment in Georgia, create jobs and and cover hundreds of thousands of Georgians who no longer have health insurance. So there's really a, a shift in the theory of the case, though, the way you're, you're describing it, whereas in, in 2018, it was not worrying about the middle, motivating the base. Now they feel they've got the base locked down and they are, in fact, shifting to the middle. Because, I mean, let's face it, I mean, it is going to be the middle that determines who wins the state, correct? You're exactly right. Yeah. Because they feel like, you, you said it, they feel like they've locked down the base. You know, what did Raphael Warnock, what was he most known for last year? Federal voting rights, the John Lewis Act. He was, you know, front and center every step of the way and pushing for a federal voting rights expansion. Stacey Abrams, that that's her signature issue. In 2018, she ran so far to the left that she became an icon to many, not just in Georgia, but also nationally um, as this progressive uh, hero, right? So right now she's got that. She's got that sort of grounding. Um, she doesn't feel like, or she hasn't yet, uh, you know, tried to uh, try to amplify that anymore um, because she's already got that base. Now her challenge is is moving to the middle and, and capturing both. And this is something that kept Governor Kemp's team up at night was this sort of dual narrative that they were worried she could pull off as a hero to the left, but also this pragmatic, consensus driven um, politician who could work across party lines. And they did everything they could to stop that second vision of her. Okay, so I'm going to ask you a question about something that I know absolutely nothing about, but I'm intrigued about, yeah. because the the dynamics within the Republican legislature seem interesting to me. There are a number of states where the legislature is in lockstep to the most extreme elements of the party. There seem to be divisions, and they, they back off from extreme legislation. I'm basing this on a tweet that you had this morning, where the legislature passed a bill about mental health parity in insurance, and mm-hmm. if I'm getting this right, the speaker was actually, you know, expressing gratitude that they were able to push back against a massive disinformation campaign to get this passed. So can you tell me about this? Because for, you know, a hard right Republican legislature to pass something like that just seems a little bit, I mean, what, what, so what's going on there? It's a little head spinning, isn't it? Yeah. Right? Yeah. That's what I'm, I'm like, I, do I understand the dynamic here? And I, well, because, because the I same didn't, day so they I'd ask you, that. you know. <laughs> no, you're right. You're exactly right. Because the same day they passed that legislation, they also passed a, a broad gun rights expansion um, called the permitless carry that lets people carry concealed guns without yeah. permits or background checks. Oh, so it's it is it is head spinning, right? How one moment you can do that, and the next moment you can pass this this unanimous, right, broad bipartisan legislation that was the priority of the of the speaker, and it goes to show you that establishment um, Republicans sort of the more mainstream Republicans um, still have clout. So, you know, they're looking at two audiences too, just like Democrats are looking at, you know, the middle and the left. Republicans are doing the same thing. They've, they've got to lock down their base. They've got to embrace a lot of culture wars legislation that we haven't seen in Georgia in a long time about transgender athletes and book bans and trying to steer how teachers can talk mm-hmm. about race and gender to their students. But at the same time, they're also passing budgets that have giant pay raises for teachers and law enforcement and public officials. And in this case, you know, really reshapes how Georgia handles mental health issues, that something that touches every family in the state. Greg Bluestein, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Uh, Greg is a political reporter at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution who covers uh, state and national politics. New book about the epic 2020 elections in Georgia called Flipped how Georgia turned purple and broke the monopoly on Republican power. Greg, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, It was a real pleasure. Thank you for having me. 
The Bulwark Podcast is produced by Katie Cooper with audio production by Jonathan Siri. I'm Charlie Sykes. Thank you for listening to today's Bulwark Podcast, and we'll be back tomorrow. We'll do this all over again.